Hello, everyone. Welcome to our first ever Patreon debrief episode. We wanted to create a small platform where we can talk more casually about a case that we covered on Patreon. Hopefully you've all listened to the Tawasin double murder episode. If not, head over to your bonus episode on Patreon and listen to it now before this or it won't make any sense. So just to recap the case uh, in the fall of 1990, Doris Leatherbauer and Sharon Heenemann were found dead in their kitchen of their Tawasin home. They had been stabbed and bludgeoned to death. Two trials occurred, and um, it turned out that it was their son and grandson, Darren Uniman, who had created a murder for hire in which he brought on his two friends, David Muir and Derek Lord, to murder his mother and grandmother. The entire trial and the case against them hinged on the testimony of Amanda, who was Darren's ex-girlfriend, thus resulting in the conviction of all three teens, uh, and they served various different sentences, 10 years, 30 years, and 31 years. Okay, let's get into our debrief. Okay. So, Graham, what did you think about this case? Um, Well, I kind of bring a bit of a unique perspective to this case, which is why I wanted to cover it. Um, I actually, not to age myself, but I grew up in Victoria in the 90s. Um, So I'm quite familiar with kind of the zeitgeist that was going on then. And, um, you know, there was something going on with teenagers in Victoria at that time. Uh, At nighttime, you know, there was this... There's this nightclub for teens called Spinners and sort of like the surrounding areas of that were sort of roving gangs, not really organized gangs, but gangs of teenagers who um, would beat each other senseless in the streets. And so, you know, that era of Victoria for teens was a a weird time. You know, if you think about the 90s in Victoria, there was um, obviously the the Heenemann case there in 97, there was Rena Verk was murdered by Kelly Ellard. Um, there was also a teen in Sydney who was murdered by a, a swarm. It was called swarming in the nineties. Um, so there was kind of, there was a real kind of violent culture that was going on and it wasn't a very safe town. And I, I remember being in high school and I was in a different high school, but when the news came out that Darren, Derek and David had been arrested. And I remember just sent shockwaves through our school that a teenager was several teenagers were arrested for murdering adults. Um, so it was a crazy time. Um, but the case itself, I've always found it to be one of the more shocking cases in British Columbia. The fact that, um, you know, somebody could do that for money or for the, the promise of money and set aside the, the values of family and love and all that kind of stuff. It's just, uh, you know, it's just an overall shocking case. But I do think that, you know, my gut tells me that the police and the juries got it got it right and the right people went to jail. What about yourself? What did you think? Well, this was a weird one. Um, really in regards to it being, again, teenagers that carried out the murder of their own, well, their, their friend's family member, and it was spearheaded by an actual family member of the two victims. It's a very unique case in that sense. And then the other unique thing about this case is it's a largely circumstantial case in regards to the evidence. There's not a lot of physical evidence in this case. And I don't think if it went to trial, 
or I do think if it went to trial today, it wouldn't be very successful. Yeah, so that's actually a really great segue because the next question that we have here is that the evidence at trial was not concrete with regards to physical or forensic evidence. So would that have swayed you if you were a jury member at either of those trials? I think the most damning thing in this case for me was the four table settings at that kitchen table. Mm -hmm. I don't think the two women would have let random strangers into their home and invite them in for their, was it lasagna dinner? Yeah, lasagna, beets, and beans. Yeah, so... So it was just a thrown together, like, whatever Friday or Thursday night dinner. Yeah, they weren't obviously expecting guests. Right. And so they saw their son's friends at the door and said, oh, if you guys are, you know, waiting for the ferry, come on in and and you can have some of what we're having. Um, And I just think that's such a key piece of evidence in this case. And I know it's incredibly circumstantial. But, you know, the fact that there were four table settings and they let people in, you know, they let these people into their home. So they had to have known who they were. And the only thing stolen was, you know, a handful of traveler's checks, probably with a value of maybe $1,000. So, um, and this is, you know, a house that is tucked away in Sawasin. So it's like for that house to be chosen randomly. Mm -mm by two random strangers is is it, it I don't think it could happen. No. It's, I mean, and it's not a city center type suburb or something like that. It's Swasson. It's, it's it's a little ways out. And what would be the purpose? Yeah, that's right. So uh what is it, access means and motive, right? Like so what well, would be Yeah, a stranger coming in. They didn't even get anything. I mean, they got some travelers checks, but mm-hmm. you know, there wasn't anything else in the home stolen. No big purchases were stolen like TVs or a radio, it was the 90s, so a VCR maybe. Nothing was taken from the home. So there had to be another motive other than a robbery gone wrong. Or And neither of them were sexually assaulted, so that no. wasn't a motive. No, and they, we actually just talked about this uh, on our walk. We talked about Occam's Razor, and we were like, well, what's, you know, what is the simplest answer in this case? And the simplest answer is that there was a boat ton of money uh, that was, uh, you know, to be uh, delivered to Darren should his mother and grandmother pass at the same time. Yeah. So, yeah, if I was on the jury, I do, I liked the evidence given of the 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 person on the ferry who recognized Derek Lord. Yeah, Because it too. put them on that ferry. Um, you know, I know that the the witness testimony of the taxi driver is a little bit, you know, sketchy, but there was, the other thing too is, David Muir phoned the cab company and said the cab was for Dave. Yeah, not exactly a good moniker to use if you don't want to be identified. If you don't want to be identified, right? And they write it back in the day, you know, the the cab operator would write that down in pen. Yeah. And say, you know, cab for Dave at the Tawasan Mall. Yeah, but again, this was in the 90s. So there's there's no real good evidence, like no CCTV footage from the cab or the ferry or mm-hmm. on the streets. There wasn't a lot of hard evidence here. So we're really working with a circumstantial case. And they were using pay phones on the ferry. Yeah, so they can't track that. Yeah. So that brings us to the next question, which is like what was what was your impression of the three different teenagers in this in this case? It's I mean, I, it's so hard to even say they seem like three normal teenagers. That's again the other shocking part of this is they seemed like this is so typical, but they seemed like good kids. Yeah, they were. Uh, uh, Derek Lord has a, a 136 IQ. Yeah. Uh, David Muir 
uh, also an incredibly intelligent uh, kid. And then uh, Darren, uh, well-to-do family, well-to-do family, privileged family. Uh, you know, I mean, th- that neighbor, 10 Mile Point is one of the nicest neighborhoods in all of Victoria, in all of British Columbia. So, you know, he grew up well. They all kind of grew up with like, you know, uh, traditional nuclear family type upbringings or at least close relationships to their parents and their very and, normal lives. There was yeah. no, there was nothing that would tell you, oh, these kids are on the wrong path. And which could- is, which is why I started this debrief by talking about the zeitgeist that was going on in Victoria in the nineties. I honestly think that there was just, there was something going on. There was, because Victoria at that time had, uh, it was, you know, the joke was it was for the newlywed or the nearly dead. So it was a very heavy retirement community type of city. But you had this, um, you know, the children of boomers who were all kind of like, there was a lot of them and they had nothing to do. And they were quite, um, and it's not to say they were walking around murdering people, but there, there it was just an, a weird era that these kids who came from absolute privilege could think that they could pull off like a mafia style hit. And I was just going to add that, you know, this wasn't a time in life where there was internet or really even like video games. There was not a lot for teenagers to do. So I wonder if that was part of the scene in Victoria at the time. It was just a lot of like teens influencing each other and maybe not always for the best. Yeah. and And to add to that, there wasn't really a lot of like, uh, strife, you know, there was, you know, there was not the endless bombardment of negative news on, uh, you know, every single day and stuff. It was, it was the nineties. It was just kind of a, just a little bit more of a chill time, but for some reason the kids were, were popping off. Mm-hmm. Well, what did I wanted to ask? What did you think about Amanda's testimony? And that was Darren's ex-girlfriend. And that's really what this case hinged on was her words. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's, I mean, there's two schools of thoughts here because none of the interviews were recorded by the police, either on audio or video. And was that typical for the time or was that a mistake? I, that's a, good, a great question. Was it typical of the time or was it that, you know, this was the Delta police force who didn't really handle a lot of murders and it was also co-investigated by the Saanich police force also didn't, um, you know, uh, deal with a lot of murders. So I don't know if if they did the right thing by not recording, at least audio recording them. Yeah, like that's that's been around for ages and ages, so I, I can't even blame that on, oh, it was the 90s. I mean, audio recording yeah. has been... Around, yeah. And so, and so the reason why I bring that up is because, you know, Derek Lord's family, they believe that there were pauses in the interviews when Amanda was fed information, which would be hold back information on the crime. And the thing is, for me, the most impactful part of what she had to say was when she said, when the officer said, then what did they do? And she said, they put cloths over their faces. Like that is a very specific thing from the crime. They wouldn't know that. Nobody would know that. She wouldn't know that. Sorry. She wouldn't know that unless she'd been told by them. Unless she was told by them or by the police. And Mm -hmm. so like, so I understand where the Lord family's sort of uh, 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 skepticism comes from. But that to me is damning that. And the, um, the duffel bag with the crowbars being thrown off the ferry Mm -hmm. is very indicative. And then when she even spokes of their emotional 
um, state in the car on the way home from the ferry terminal where she says uh, Darren expressed regret. Derek Lord was uh, almost catatonic in shock at what he had done. And David Muir was like giddy. giddy. Yeah, strange. Yeah. Very strange. You know, and so what did you think of her testimony? Because, you know, it could easily be said, well, uh, she was a, a girl who had been broken up with. She was 17 years old. Like maybe she was coming from a reactionary place. Well, yeah, I mean, it's so hard to even, again, think of my feelings towards this because it could go either way. This could have been a girl who was just broken up with by this person who now she's being dragged into a police station for. Right, and and threatened with charges. Yeah, and she was, you know, facing charges herself in regards to this. So is it totally honest? Maybe. Is it, maybe, did they feed her information? Also possible. I mean, Mm -hmm. I I don't really know what to think of Amanda's testimony. I think a lot of this case, again, hinged on it. And I think... Again, yeah, the the damning information for me was the cloths over the face. You know, at 17 years old, somebody breaks up with you. You might, like, uh, talk shit about them or, you know, cut up their their favorite shirt or something like that, right? But, like, to let, like, three teenagers go to jail for literal life sentences on a murder charge seems, like, excessive. So, I like, I don't – using Occam's razor again, like – it doesn't seem plausible. Yeah, I don't think I don't think a person would do that. I'm just saying that I've seen that said online. I've yeah, said yeah. I've I've seen people say like she could have been coached or she yeah. could have been angry at at the at the guys for the relationship ending or or whatever. Yeah, she didn't she didn't say anything before the breakup and then after they broke up and then she had a different song to sing. I, yeah, I've seen that stuff online too, but it's it's so um uh, uh Monday morning quarterback or, you know, lazy boy detective kind of stuff. Like I, I think that her testimony again going back to the cloths over the faces, the detail about the key being hidden in the wood pile. Mm-hmm. Um there were so many things in there that were just far too accurate. And like, yeah, far too accurate for her to be, you know, lying about it. Or again, the police may have coached her into saying the right things. But I, I don't know. I, I find her credible? Mm-hmm. Question mark. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And 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 I think I actually remember speaking to somebody who um, who met her, and uh, and he he spoke openly with her about the case. And I, I mean, I'm, you know, this is second handing the story, but you know, he said that she's incredibly credible too, as an adult. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah. I mean, so that brings us to, you know, we spoke a little bit about Derek Lord and his family. So let's get into that. Cause that is the meat and potatoes of, of really the last 30 years of this case is like, what are your thoughts on Derek Lord's refusal to admit guilt and his parents' course of action throughout this. They've literally bankrupted themselves. Uh, they've spoken to everybody they possibly can to try to get to to try to get their son out of prison, and he has not admitted guilt. Aside from two innocent lives being taken, I think this is potentially the saddest part of this case. Mm-hmm. Is Derek Lord's parents either being so completely brainwashed by their son's lies or so determined to fight for his for justice of him being released because he's not guilty i think that's really like one of the saddest parts of this case is yeah. they've literally bankrupted themselves they've lost houses they've taken out liens on houses they've they've 
spent all of this money on him, and he still is refusing to admit that he had anything to do with it, that he took part of it at all. And the other two confessed, and Amanda confessed. So I find it difficult to believe that he had nothing to do with it or he wasn't aware of anything. I I, I, I really just think he's just digging in his feet and refusing to admit guilt because he's been singing the same story for 30 years. Yeah, yeah, which is wild if he is if he is guilty and he has claimed his innocence for 30 years that is wild and if he is innocent and if he, he's claimed his innocence for 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 30 years that is also equally wild like because couldn't he have got out at 10 years if he, he could have gotten out at 10 years yes. and and like so it's interesting because when you do when you google uh, and search for stories about Derek Lord. There's an interesting article that comes up, and it's about um, parents whose children do the unthinkable, and about the emotional journey that it takes for a parent to come to grips with what happened. And many people may know the Columbine high school shooting that occurred in Colorado. Sue Claybold is one of the mothers of one of the um, the shooters that day, and she actually has a TED talk. Mm -hmm. Um, where, you know, she talks about that emotional journey of, you know, I raised this kid. Um, I love him. I will always love him. It's her child. Right. Um, but coming to grips with the concept that your child can do something so horrible. Yeah. Like what happened? Yeah. And, but then for like, for both parents to share and also his sister and other people in the family to share that, um, sort of that, uh, that disconnect, um, um, that cognitive dissonance between, what has been proven in court and what they truly believe happened. With the person that they know and who, you know, what yeah. he's capable of. Yeah, and it, it is, I completely agree with you. It is the other tragic part of this story is that, um, you know, that family seems to have lost so much. Mm -hmm. um, whereas when you look at David Muir, you know, he had a, like a semi-confession before, uh, bef before I think Amanda broke, he had a bit of a confession, which kind of opened the door for the for the police. And then, um, you know, he had to put in a not guilty plea at trial. It's you have you kind of have to. Yeah. If there's going to be a trial, you might as well just go for a not guilty plea and mm -hmm. see what happens or whatever. Um, but he, uh, you know, upon conviction, he just said, "Yeah, I did it." And then that was it. And he did his time. He doesn't talk to the press. He, the only thing that he has said is, you know, like, and I'm paraphrasing is, is that, you know, nothing I can say can, can bring them back and adding my voice into this, um, into this equation actually just detracts from what happened to these victims. And so I'm just going to not talk. And yeah, I think you can't find anything about him anywhere online. We tried very hard for the episode and he is a ghost online. And I, I guess for good reason. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a, it's a sad thing about um about Derek's family, but uh, maybe I don't know, maybe they know something we don't. But I feel I, really, I've read, honestly, I feel if he's innocent, I feel really terrible for him and the family yeah. that with everything they've had to do and, and lose. But if he is indeed guilty of of this and he was found guilty, yeah, then again, it's just tragedy for the parents that they just can't get like over that. Uh, cognitive dissonance where they can't, you know, Accept admit it. to themselves yeah. that, you know, their son was capable of yeah. this. 
And even if, if you look at Huniman too, like he, like, I mean, when he got to prison, he got worse. Like he, 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 he injured a guard. He escaped with two other prisoners. He went on a, a wild car chase. He was apprehended. There's a video online of him like face down in a ditch being uh, dragged away by the police after the, the car chase. And, you know, he, he was not great in prison, but even he now well beyond his 25-year life sentence, has finally said, yeah, I, d- I did do this. Yeah, he orchestrated the whole thing. Yeah, so now we've got two and then a third with Amanda saying, yes, this is what happened. And so the holdout with Lord is just, um, you know, I, I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't, I don't know why he won't admit it, but yeah, that's no one will ever know. But I know we've already touched on it, but and you believe that justice was served in this case. I do. I do. I, I, there's a lot of times in, especially British Columbia, because, you know, or Canada writ large, where I don't always think that the justice system gets it right. Um, with is and with regards to sentencing, um, and, uh, I believe that those, those sentences fit the crimes. I mean, the two, you know, Lord and Muir were underage, so they got the maximum, which was a 10 years without without parole options and keep in mind like you know it's when they say a life sentence and 10 years you get paroled like that life sentence still continues even if a person gets out at 10 years their life is filled with conditions like conditions where they can live who they can talk to how much internet they can have what they can use it for where they can work like their life is forever changed so a life sentence is a life sentence really uh in canada even though they might be not be incarcerated for the full but the thing is, I, I truly believe that having two of the people in prison for 30-something years, having the the most um, the, the one that ha- had the most contrition leave after 10 years and then quietly go about his life, uh, you know, I think justice was served. And, and keep in mind, we're dealing with a 16-year-old, a 17-year-old, and an 18-year-old who are now, you know, pushing 50. Mm-hmm. What about yourself? Did you think justice was served? I, I do. I do. I think that they got the right people. I think it's highly unlikely that it was anyone else, that it was a stranger or anything. I think the pieces just line up so perfectly for these three to be the perpetrators. Um, and I think the sentences were fair, even though, you know, they were underage. Um, yeah, I think they got it right in this one. Well, let us know what you thought about this case because that is going to wrap up this debrief episode. We want to thank you so much again for joining us. We will be back soon with more Patreon content. Thank you again and again for supporting the podcast. Take care of yourselves and each other.